Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing Extra, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute, stepping briefly into the presenter's chair to bring you this bonus episode to discuss the Chancellor's forthcoming budget and the first multi-year spending review since 2015. This special edition of the podcast is kindly supported by the Federation of Small Businesses. Rishi's next time as Chancellor has so far been dominated by the crisis of coronavirus. He was hoping to be able to use this budget and spending review to reset and refocus on the government's other priorities. And over the summer, it did look like things were turning a corner. Better than expected economic news suggested COVID might not have such a damaging long-term effect on the economy, and the Chancellor was able to withdraw the furlough scheme and other extraordinary COVID-era support, as intended at the end of September. But as Budget Day has got closer, the news has increasingly been dominated by new crises, supply shortages, energy price increases, and generally rising inflation. And COVID also seems to be rearing its head again. To help discuss what all of this means for what we will hear from the Chancellor this week, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my IFG colleagues and by two special guests. I have with me today Tom Pope, IFG Deputy Chief Economist. Hi, Tom. Hi, Gemma. Graham Atkins, an Associate Director at the IFG who leads our work on public service performance. Hi, Graham. Hi, Gemma. And I'm delighted to be joined by our two special guests. Sonia Khan is Associate Director at Cicero AMO and formerly a special advisor to both Sajid Javid and Philip Hammond when they were Chancellor. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Gemma. And finally, Craig Beaumont, Chief of External Affairs at the Federation of Small Businesses. Hi, Craig. Hi, Gemma. Sonia, at a moment like this, when all eyes are on the Chancellor, do you miss the excitement of being in the Treasury? Um, Do you know, I'm enjoying doing it from afar. I certainly don't miss the very, very long hours and the constant sugar high that comes with doing a budget. Uh, So it's nice to have a different perspective. So perhaps we can start by, by talking about the sort of big picture behind this budget. The government as I said, I seems to be keen to use the announcements to take a longer term view and return some of the big pledges that were made in the 2019 manifesto, particularly around levelling up. So if we start there, and I'll, we'll then come back later on to talk about some of the more immediate economic and living cost pressures that might also be hanging over this budget. Tom, to start with you then, what did the March budget set out in terms of economic growth and public finances? And how have things changed since then? March definitely feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? And you remember back to then, actually, we were still relatively early on in the vaccine rollout. It wasn't quite clear how well that was going to go, to what extent that was going to allow the economy to get back to normal. And as a result, the forecasts were really quite cautious on economic growth. So faster than usual growth for a couple of years while uh, the economy sort of caught up and recovered. But the OBR, the official forecaster, still thought that COVID would do large permanent damage to the economy. So it would be about 3% smaller than it would otherwise have been in the longer term. And that's obviously very bad news for the public finances. If the economy is 3% smaller, then roughly the tax receipts you're going to get are about 3% smaller too. And that meant that even with a very tight spending review envelope, so they're not planning to spend that much money on public services, the government was on track just about to stop borrowing for day-to-day spending, which is what Rishi Sunak has said he thinks means being fiscally sustainable by the mid-2020s. So what's happened since then? Well, certainly the story up to August was that the economy has recovered much more strongly than anticipated. And actually on the latest GDP figures, the economy is already less than 3% smaller than the pre-COVID forecast thought we would be at this point. So it seems like that that 3% permanent damage figure is a little bit pessimistic. Um, And accordingly, most other forecasters have upgraded their expectations for 
um, how far the economy is going to get back to that pre-pandemic path. So the Bank of England, perhaps the natural comparator here is the other public sector forecaster, expects that COVID will only do 1% permanent damage to the economy. Um, I know that's probably good news for the Chancellor and the public finances and all of us. But on the other hand, and particularly since the summer, other pressures have emerged. Inflation and as a result, interest rates are now expected to be higher than before. And both of those in isolation increase the deficit, make the public finances worse because have to spend more on debt interest spending, spend more on things like benefits and uh, public sector pensions that are, are linked to inflation. If the OBR is as optimistic as the bank about the long-term prospects of the economy, then you know, those small negatives on inflation and interest rates won't matter too much. The Chancellor will still be in a much better position. He could have a, a forecast upgrade of about 20 billion a year by the middle of the 2020s. But if they're a bit less optimistic, particularly if they're, um, you know, perhaps because they're, they're worried by the sort of headwinds we've seen more recently, if they still think that the economy is going to be quite a bit smaller than it was going to be pre-COVID, naturally, the Chancellor might not have a much better forecast at all, at least as far as the public finances are concerned. Is it taking all that together, how different are the next few years likely to feel for you and I, ordinary people compared to the last few years? Is it going to feel like a distinctly new era of growing prosperity? Well, I think it's fair to say that the roaring 20s haven't got off to the most auspicious start. And again, if we focus beyond that, those short-term issues, what really matters is economic growth. And that's really what's going to affect um, you know, how easy it is for the government to, to spend more money on public services, how easy it is to, to cut taxes or at least not increase them, and also how much we'd expect our wages to go up as well. And obviously, the path of the economy is now is always a huge unknown. Um, but I also think even if we get back to the sort of pre-pandemic path for growth, actually, that wasn't that rosy a picture either. And really, the, the bane of the UK economy since the Great Recession of, of 2008 really has been a productivity malaise. Productivity just hasn't been increasing like it used to. And really, that is the, the root of all economic growth. And ultimately, that's the reason why the last five, 10 years have felt so difficult, because the wages haven't been increasing very quickly, uh, because businesses can't afford to pay more wages um, if productivity isn't increasing. That's meant the government hasn't had that much money to spend, and the squeeze on public services has had to continue further. So really, I would say, unless we get a sort of step change in in productivity, it's not going to suddenly feel like the roaring 20s. Now, I'm sure the forecast this week will not anticipate a sudden return to sort of early 2000s or, or late 1990s productivity growth. But let's all hope that in hindsight, we'll look back at this forecast and say that was far too pessimistic. Um, we don't really understand the, all of the reasons for, for the productivity puzzle. Hopefully, something will happen that will resolve them, will we'll resolve that. Um, but otherwise, I think... You know, we're not going to expect really big increases in living standards, as you say, a, a new era of prosperity without that. Sonia, there was a story in the Financial Times last week suggesting that the Chancellor had put pressure on the Office of Budget Responsibility to close its forecast unusually early so that it looked a bit more gloomy this time than it otherwise could have done. The suggestion being that this helps him this autumn to kind of hold the strong line on the need for spending restraint, but then hoping that he can store up the capacity for pre-election tax giveaways. Does that story sound credible to you? Is it good politics? 
Um, it doesn't, just because I know what the relationship is like between the Treasury and the OBR. And generally, the OBR are fairly resolute and won't take to that influence. But I also think that there's very little to gain from Rishi Sunak's perspective, because regardless of what the OBR forecasts say, if I'm looking at Conservative MPs particularly, if they've got a campaign or an issue that they feel like hasn't been covered by the budget, regardless of what the wider economy looks like, that will continue um, despite kind of the data that the Chancellor presents. So I'd say at least on the MP side, people are, are like fairly fairly robust and won't really be impacted by that. But also um, I think what Chancellors are very cognizant of now is that if they save uh, a lot of spending, they often don't get the credit for the delivery. It'll be the Chancellor that comes after them or the party that comes after them. So in the last few years, I think there's really been a sense of like at least some delivery now rather than continually hold things back. I don't think anyone wants to be like the uh, austerity chancellor or the chancellor that had no good news under their patch. So I think for two reasons, that's why that story doesn't ring true to me. On that point about the sort of the big priorities that Conservative MPs are really looking for the government to deliver on. I mean, it feels like levelling up is going to be a big theme of this week. I mean, you were an advisor to Sajid Javid when this government was elected on its its levelling up mandate. What would you be expecting to see this week in terms of putting some more meat on the bones of that? The thing that was very clear, firstly, at the Conservative Party conference is that every single group has a totally different interpretation of what levelling up looks like, Uh, whether that focuses on skills for you, whether that focuses on kind of housing or infrastructure or tech. So I suspect that we'll start to get a broad sense of of what levelling up actually is based on the priorities that the Chancellor has chosen to focus on and spend. And for him, that's very, very much about like broad tech, broad infrastructure, um, like a little bit less public spending in the spaces that we might expect him to consider. There's been a lot this weekend about how actually education is not at the top of the list. So um, it'll be fascinating to see kind of how he miles up levelling up without necessarily that kind of upfront investment. But I think for me, there are like three conflicting issues. And one is um, sort of like the sustainability agenda ahead of COP26 one is a cost of living crisis. And then one is this broad kind of economic, uh, let's get the economy going, let's drive investment sort of narrative. And ultimately, the three of those have very different audiences and can't uh, can't combine. So for me, I would be keen for Rishi Sunak now to start saying here are who the winners and losers are going to be um, as we grow our post-COVID economy, which is a very, like a very frank, and maybe slightly horrible way of framing it. But ultimately, if you're a chancellor, you can't please everyone. And I don't have that sense of kind of where the losses might be yet. Craig, I'll come back in a minute to talk about perhaps some of the more immediate economic pressures. But if we sort of look to the the medium term, what are your members hoping to see from the budget this week to create the sort of environment that they need to thrive and generate that sort of economic growth that Sonia was just talking about? Thanks, Gemma. Um, well, I think it's clear to all the small businesses that they've had a they've had a torrid eighteen months. And it looks like it'll be followed by a tough winter, and then through perhaps through 2022. So I heard what you know what, what you've just said about the economic forecasts. But to look at some other government actual stats, not forecasts, the the small business community in the UK has shrunk. So it was just touching on nearly six million small businesses at the start of COVID, and in the annual stats released um, just a couple of weeks ago, this has fallen to 5.5 million. Now that's mega for our community. So yes, we may have lost, you know, 100 large businesses, maybe 500 medium sized, but we've lost over 400,000 small businesses. 
and primarily the smallest end. So in economic terms, pure economic terms, those are the most fragile and they've gone. And with the lag in the stats, we think that could actually be much worse. So yes, the forecasts may look good in terms of the bounce, but we are very concerned that the economy is actually, for us, is smaller than it was. And also the recovery could be running out of steam. And in that context, a Conservative Chancellor should be looking at what can I do to keep as many businesses alive as possible and keep going? It isn't just about how what's the shape of the economy. It's actually about what do you want to succeed? And after talking to small business up and down the country, we've, we've put in lots of ideas, as you expect, for the budget and the spending review. But the top two, I'd say, one is on uh, employment costs, where it's very clear the cost of creating and sustaining a job is rising. And of course, in April, will rise dramatically with the jobs tax. In fact, with the four different tax rises that will hit in April, alongside a living wage increase. So you've suddenly got this moment where a very expensive process suddenly becomes even more expensive. And we think the unemployment queues will grow by uh, at least 50,000 people. And others have done their own kind of exercise in this and end up with much higher figures. So it'll be interesting to see what the OBR says will be the impact on jobs of the increase in the in the tax burden. So one idea we've got here is on the employment allowance, which covers the first £4,000 of every uh, small business's employer national insurance bill. And it should cover, really, the cost of employer NICs for four employees on a living wage. But that that link is broken in April. Um, And if you look at the furlough stats, it's the group that employed two to four people who were using furlough most at the end. So these are the most at-risk jobs, most at-risk small businesses. So we're saying increase the employment allowance by £1,000 to £5,000. And that won't take up all the costs of the upcoming tax rise, but it will be a contribution towards it. And it will enable us to continue creating and sustaining jobs. Uh, And the second idea is on upfront cost of doing business. So um, Sonny mentioned the cost of living crisis. There's probably, I think, a bit of exploration about a cost of doing business crisis. You know, um, and the most important one that businesses are raising here is business rates. It's a, you know, it's an, it's an old topic, um, but we've come out with some new ideas, such as moving the small business rates threshold from twelve to fifteen thousand to twenty five thousand, and that basically removes two hundred thousand small businesses out the bottom of the tax altogether. And this works economically, uh, and it works politically as well, as it these two hundred thousand businesses are disproportionately in the northeast, northwest Yorkshire, and the southwest. So if you want to level up and help businesses in those level up regions and also do something clever in the red, blue and yellow, blue walls, that's the way to do it. You pay one pound in business rates before you earn one pound in turnover, let alone profit. So it disincentivizes everything. If you want to put solar panels to contribute to net zero, you'll pay more in your business rates every year from then on. If you do ventilation, it does the same thing. This is a really pernicious tax. Uh, And oddly, this is the moment that the government has promised to do something about it. So we want to see what these two measures are. What sort of uh, reduction in tax revenues would we be talking about if the Chancellor did all of what you've just described? So those two, um, the business rates tax is just over 1 billion um, and the employment allowance is uh, just over 400 million. So these are big numbers. For us, these are massive numbers. Looking over the weekend at the 26 billion in spending commitments and the 16 press releases issued by the Treasury, I'm not sure this is big enough. Maybe we should have gone bigger. Um, but these are significant. Um, uh, but interestingly, we've, we've found ways to save money to, to raise the money for them. So we are, we are also proposing, and I think this fits with Graham's work, uh, who's also on this podcast, about better value from the public sector. 
uh, which, you know, we, we think you can get 3% of savings through better use of public procurement, better use of small businesses within public procurement, dynamic purchasing, and that would raise 7 billion, which easily exceeds these two um, major asks. Okay, we'll come back to public spending in a bit then, but just Tom, briefly coming back to you, how does that sort of 1.4 billion ask stack up against the extra room that Rishi Sunak might have from improved economic forecasts? It's always quite funny, isn't it, when we talk about sort of billions and hundreds of millions here and there. And of course, these are these are huge numbers. But in the context of the government public finances that um, the government's spending and getting in tax 800 or 900 billion a year, you know, it, it's not that much. And so I'm sure that if the Chancellor decided that that, that was his priority and that was the, the money he wanted to find, so he, he could easily find um, a, a billion here or, or a billion there. So I think that, that that's the kind of thing that you know chancellors can never resist an opportunity to to do something with the tax system um so so i suspect that um you know, a, a billion here or there is is well within uh, what he's able to to provide we already touched on some of the issues around the cost of living crisis and the cost-facing businesses. But let's turn our attention squarely to that question now. There's been a lot of talk in recent weeks about energy prices, supply problems, labour shortages, high inflation, and especially as policy choices are also starting to bear down on incomes. The furlough scheme has ended, £20 a week universal credit uplift also ended in September. And next April, people will be hit with the new health and social care levy and the freeze in income tax thresholds. So Tom, what's your take on the current economic issues? Is this merely a blip or is there a risk that these are longer term issues? I think lots of the issues you, you described, putting aside for a moment the, the, the policy changes, you know, the supply chain problems, labour shortages, energy price hikes, the stuff that's leading to the the high inflation that we're seeing and, and expecting to get get higher. Lots of those sound like the sorts of things that, that should be temporary rather than persistent, although it's hard to be sure. And you know, temporary doesn't necessarily mean a few months. It can easily mean 12, 18, even, even 24 months. But, but to me, at least, they don't seem like the kind of factors that would mean you know, we're in a new, higher era of inflation. Now, it doesn't mean that, that things won't be painful, and it could be, say, a a permanent price level rise that would therefore have a, a permanent in, uh, impact on on real wages or at least a longer lasting one. But on, on the whole, I don't think these are the types of factors that would keep leading to prices rising more quickly for two, three or five years. Now, the big risk that um, the Bank of England is, is worried about is that even what, what, what starts out as, as temporary higher inflation for a relatively prolonged period then leads people to expect higher inflation I suppose that the real fear is a, a so-called wage price spiral where employees demand higher wages, expecting higher inflation, and that itself pushes up costs and therefore increases prices. And you know, the ability to anchor expectations at low inflation has been one of the big benefits of independent monetary policy making. How likely is that to happen now? Well, there's some sign that inflation expectations are increasing, but also the structure of the economy and how we set wages now is very different to when we routinely had these problems in, in the 50s and 60s. Collective bargaining's not as strong, unions aren't as powerful. And so it's very possible that this channel will be much weaker than it used to be. So I think if, if I were a betting man, I would say I expect these issues to mostly be temporary. But you know, it's so long since 
um, we have, have worried about inflation as, as a country, as an economics profession. I mean, certainly in, in my professional career, it's just not been an, an issue. And I think to an extent, therefore, there are a lot of unknowns as to how, how, much, as how these sort of um, effects are going to work their way through. Craig, how much are these issues around supply shortages, labour shortages, rising costs worrying your members? And, and how much are your members seeing the sort of thing that Tom was talking about with rising wage demands as employees start to anticipate higher inflation? Well, I think some of these issues would be huge on their own, um, but they seem much bigger together. And all of them together are all piling on cost pressures. So, I mean, I, I speak about these with members all the time, and it can feel almost too much, too big to assess what the issue is and then come out with good policy responses. So I think, you know, if you ask small businesses now, you know, two thirds of our members say they our members say they won't be growing in the next quarter. You know, skill shortage at five year high. 76% say that costs are rising. And that was, you know, up from 40% a year before. So I think the standout issue from these really is probably the staff side, the staff shortages. So they're finding it harder to find staff. We know of restaurants that are only opening for, you know, three to four days a week, despite having potentially a roaring trade. And I think if you ask people, okay, so are you increasing salaries? They are doing what they can. But then you get into a ceiling very fast of how can I employ six people and get enough turnover enough profit in order to pay these people. Uh, so it's really, really difficult. And I think the government's view we've heard, you know, is that the shutting down of furlough is is going to be the solution. Um, you know, you got you had a million people on furlough at the end, you had a million vacancies, and as, as if you can just switch them across. And I don't think that's realistic. It's a slightly laissez-faire kind of approach to it coming out from furlough, that people will find their way into these roles. So I think, you know, skill shortage has, has, has dominated the hope is it's temporary, but I think we're going to have to look at the stats over the next month to see what actually happens with those. Uh, connected the supply chain. I mean, small businesses now say they're struggling to get deliveries through all the new customs procedures after Brexit, but also the shipping crisis coming at the same point. So now it, to, to get a shipping container can be seven, eight, nine, or even 10 times in terms of the cost what they were before. So combining that with the HGV drivers crisis, which is to some extent staff shortage, it's getting very difficult now to trade. And if you're thinking about well, where is the future of the UK economy, where is the growth going to be, the traditional approach to that is to say, well, let's find the growth markets and go and trade there. And that's becoming increasingly difficult. You mentioned energy bills there as well. That does affect small businesses, especially at the smallest end. So we're looking there whether we could get some extension to the um, help for households to help for the very, very smallest businesses, small users of energy, basically, who are who need the same protections that households get and don't have them in terms of regulation. Uh, we've got fingers crossed for that for budget as well. We've had a couple of small businesses say that they're going to be closing their premises because that way they can save money and have more people working from home. I don't think that's actually the right way that a small business should be faced with making decisions on how to operate their, their premises. You're being knocked around by costs. And with the upcoming tax rises, of course, you get knocked around by tax just as much. And then you mentioned COVID. I mean, COVID piling on top. Such a huge worry. We've run the economy hot on COVID, but no one knows what the trigger points really are for new restrictions. Now, plan B is okay. It's broadly sensible. Something missing in there is workplace testing, which the government cut and got rid of um, for the summer. And I think you can rely on the vaccine, but you're going to have to rely on testing as well if plan B comes in. And then plan C, there needs to be more business support if there is plan C. You made an interesting point there, 
about um, the end of furlough. And do you have any sort of anecdotal evidence from your members about the extent to which people are coming off furlough and keener to find new jobs? Yes. And what is really interesting is the number of people who had got another job. So obviously in furlough, you were, you were not allowed to work for your existing employer, but you could work somewhere else. So we've got lots of stories of people who've either, who either got another role with another company and the end of furlough is the, mo- is the trigger moment for having to, them having to decide which way to go. We've had a change in working habits, I think, um, driven partly by furlough. But that's, you know, there's lots of jobs that people in this country simply don't seem able or willing to do if, if there's an alternative. And interestingly, finally, we've seen a lot of people who set their own business. So, you know, if they were furloughed, stuck at home, uh, they had a hobby. A lot of them have turned that hobby into a minor business. Now, some of those minor businesses, those side hustles, have taken off. You know, people being very creative with their hobbies and then working out they can monetize them, which is brilliant. And actually, what we should see now is a push on startup loans to enable these new kind of nascent businesses to start to fill that gap in the small business population I mentioned at the start. Sonia, to sort of return to the the broader picture of some of the economic issues that going on at the moment. It it seems to me that so far the Chancellor and Prime Minister are hoping they can ride this out with only fairly minor policy concessions and still pushing ahead with the previously announced benefit cuts and tax rises. Is it right to interpret their actions that way? Do you think that gambit will play off? No, I don't think so. Not least as they're being backed into a corner by Labour and prolific campaigners like Marcus Rashford. Um, But interestingly, what I saw on the weekend, um, as the Chancellor did a number of media interviews, views was that he was quite relaxed about the campaigns that might come his way and therefore the policy response which makes me think that he's got something up his sleeve I mean he was challenged on um, VAT on energy bills he was challenged on free school meals and Marcus Rashford's campaign to uh, to widen access to uh, free school meals so to me it felt like if there was going to be a rabbit it might be in this space but I think for all the capital spending that's been announced in the in the world whether this is new money or old the general public won't be thanking Rishi Sunak if they don't feel like the immediate crisis, which very much feels like um, a, like a purse strings crisis, isn't resolved. I think the the interesting risks that I'm that I'm seeing now, and I think another reason that there is an ad- additional pressure on the chances to actually deliver on the policy front is that there's a real poor versus rich narrative that I haven't seen since I worked at DWP in 2014. So the idea um, that You've got reform to the banking surcharge, for example, versus removing £20 from uh, the poorest via universal credit. I think that's something he will be very, very cognizant of in terms of going into the budget, that he doesn't want to be seen to be siding with the wrong group almost, or that any policy measures that he introduced will sort of widen that chasm. So I think that that's one of the reasons perhaps for why he feels like he can't ride it out with small announcements only. Graham, one of the ways that the Prime Minister has been trying to sort of turn a negative into a positive in recent weeks has been talking about the fact that higher wages is good for workers and that actually businesses should use this as an opportunity to pay their workers more and invest in making them more productive and that that will be the future of stronger growth in the UK economy. It seems there might be kind of a parallel question for the government as an employer itself. The the public sector is one of the country's major employers for some types of shortage occupations, notably health and care workers. What do you think all of this means actually if the 
Prime Minister was to reflect on himself as an employer of these workers and what higher wages means there? I suppose the simple answer is that if the government's uh, answer to business is that in order to deal with staff shortages, you you should pay your workers more, then to deal with, you know, recruitment and retention problems in the public sector, the government ought to, you know, increase pay for public sector workers. I mean, I think in practice, the government seems to have at least accepted this logic. So you can kind of see that in the NHS, we already know there's going to be a pay rise of about 30% for most staff next year after a kind of a year of pay freezes, which, to be fair, uh, you know, made sense when you had a private sector labour market that kind of didn't have as many opportunities and there were increases in kind of applications for public sector roles and, and decreasing turnover. It definitely made, there was a logic to having a temporary pay freeze. But I think probably now, and in practice, I think the government will have to end the public sector pay cap and kind of allow wages to retain parity, uh, at least retain parity with private sector workers over the next year. I think where the government probably needs to be most concerned is care workers and adult social care. So we were running at about a vacancy rate of 8% before the pandemic. It fell to around 5% during the middle, but it's now much higher. It's around 9 or 10 and we're expecting that vacancy rate to go up probably the second half of November when some care workers who haven't been double vaccinated are going to be asked to leave their jobs. Uh, so that's now become a condition of employment. So last Thursday, uh, not very kind of not with much fanfare, the government announced a couple of hundred million for social care providers up until March next year uh, to help increase care worker recruitment and retention. But that really is a sticking plaster. And I think we're probably going to have to see more action on perhaps a social care specific sectoral wage or more money for local authorities to increase pay for care workers over the next few years. That's a good point at which to shift our attention to the spending review, because clearly any extra money that's found for health and care workers will need to be weighed up against all the other many demands that there are going to be in the spending review this Wednesday. Multi-year spending review is normally an important part of effective longer-term planning in government, but the combination of Brexit and then COVID means that we haven't actually had one for six years now. So the settlements announced this Wednesday will be particularly significant for setting the budgets for the whole of the rest of this parliament and really giving a sense of where this government's priorities are. Even though the Chancellor has more money to play with than was the case in the last two multi-year spending reviews in 2010 and 2015. There are also lots of demands for it. So Graham, coming back to you, you've just published our annual performance tracker, which we do in partnership with SIPFA, which is a stock take of the performance of the main public services, and particularly this year looking at how they fared during the pandemic. What were your conclusions from that about the competing demands going into the spending review? Um, so I think the real, the really the key point is that as a result of the pandemic, there are kind of now large backlogs. So things that didn't happen during the pandemic um, that we now might want to catch up on. That's kind of most obvious when we think about the growing waiting list for the NHS, uh, but also lost learning in schools, court cases waiting to be heard, children in some cases that weren't referred to um, social services who may have been living in kind of particularly vulnerable situations. So. There are large kind of pandemic related pressures um, that if they're not addressed quickly, will probably build up and cost more to address later on. I think in terms of when we think through the competing demands on the spending review, on the public person, the spending review, there's probably three key points. So in practice, the government has accepted it needs to allocate kind of extra money to tackle backlogs because it's given more to the NHS that health and social care levy announced in September 
the most of that is going towards NHS England to help it bring down waiting times over the next couple of years. But for some other public services, kind of it hasn't really taken that same approach. So if we look at children's social care or we look at kind of uh, the courts backlog, we don't have kind of yet allocations for central government grants to local government or we don't we also don't know the ministry of justice's you know budget over the next few years so there's quite a lot of areas that have backlogs but where we currently don't know how much money will be going in or whether it will be front loaded and lastly i think it's kind of worth saying one thing about schools so here the government has accepted there is a need to kind of catch up on lost learning but currently it's allocated just over three billion over the next couple of years and you may remember this ralph in the summer um, we estimate in kind of our central scenario that a figure around kind of uh, 11 to 14 billion would be what would be required to catch up with all the lost learning missed during the pandemic. Now, the Chancellor has been kind of making this argument on the weekend that the evidence base for extending the school day is not very good. And I really just don't think this stacks up at all. So what we do know from the evidence is that there's not a kind of good correlation between the length of a school day in a country and the outcomes that children achieve at school but there's so many other factors that kind of get in the way i don't think that's a good bit of evidence to suggest that extending the school day doesn't work and what we do know from kind of other studies and, and things that have looked at extending the school day in particular circumstances we know that these kind of programs work best when they're delivered by existing teachers when they're evidence-based and when they link to existing classes so i really don't think this kind of argument that extending the school day is, is is not evidenced, really stacks up. And I think I would be surprised if that line holds up during a spending review. We've already had, even before this spending review, actually some really quite big announcements on health and social care in September with the new levy and extra funding for those areas. Has that sorted out those big spending areas or will more need be needed in the spending review to actually tackle all of those problems? I think the short answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is perhaps a bit more interesting. So perhaps if we split out the NHS and social care, if we look at the NHS first, you kind of had an extra 12 billion uh, every year for the next three years going in to help tackle backlogs. Now, kind of clearly from the announcement this morning, we know that that in itself is insufficient because there's been another 6 billion of capital spending, largely for kind of diagnostic tests and equipment to help speed up uh, some of the procedures needed. It's really hard to say whether it's enough for the NHS. There's kind of three key things we don't know, but that really matter for, what, for whether it will be enough to tackle the backlog. The first is how many people who didn't attend uh, and didn't receive care during the pandemic will come back and will still need care now. How long infection control procedures last, which sounds extraordinarily boring, but is actually really important because uh, it really affects how, productive how productively hospitals can operate and how many people they can see. And thirdly, the cost of procedures. So at the margin, for every kind of additional operation you do, you might be expecting to pay more because there'll be there is essentially a shortage of staff that hospitals and private providers are competing for to do these operations. So in total, we estimated in our performance tracker report that you'd need around seven billion a year over the next five years to return waiting lists to pre-pandemic levels by 2026. And if you look at the amount of money going in, it's probably enough for the next two or three years but we don't have any allocations after that. So my yes is that on the NHS side, they'll probably just about stick to the plans for the next few years, but we should expect top-ups after that. On social care, I think the answer is just straightforwardly no. What the government announced changes who pays for social care, but the extra funding has only been going for reform. In fact, if you look carefully at the health and social care kind of 
uh, document that um, came alongside the tax rises, it was really clear that the government had asked councils to cover any extra costs through efficiencies and council tax increases. So I kind of suspect that there'll be more, there'll have to be quite a generous settlement for local government in the spending review, unless the government uh, is happy to take the risk of large council tax increases for social care coming next April, right about the time that you're going to see, you know, um, the health and social care levy appear on people's payslips for the first time. So that might make the numbers stack up in the spending review, a low settlement for local government, but it's probably going to cause a bit of a headache, I think, next April when people see their payslips and their council tax bills containing lines marked for social care, but wonder where that, that money is going. Sonia, it's, it's pretty clear from what Graham's just said that there are quite a lot of departments that have a pretty good case for wanting more money in this spending review. As a former advisor to two chancellors, you must have seen some of the dynamics of the discussions about spending between the Treasury and other departments. What will have been going on in the past weeks in preparation for these announcements? Well, it's a bit like a, a game of tug and war. So you'll see departments put forward their kind of their wish list, and you'll see uh, Treasury come to the table with uh, one that pretty much starts at zero. And you'll you'll find a compromise and a and a way of going forward. Uh, but you'll do that knowing the broad set of like list of priorities that the Chancellor has, which is the very first thing that you do when you even announce kind of um, a budget or a spending review. I think what's been quite interesting with this budget and the spending review is how disciplined um, the the government has been in keeping many of the ministerial disputes reined in because the biggest challenge at the at the treasury is that you're often blamed for things that are outside of your control and you have sight of OBR data that you can never really share or contextualize with um, departments who are only really thinking of themselves and really the only sense of disagreement that you've had is um, sort of Rishi Sunak publicly rebuking Kwasi Kwasen which um, I thought was quite interesting because normally to have get gotten to that point our tempers will have really sort of boiled over and I think it's a reflection of actually uh, maybe this is a geekish thing that I enjoy but how government has set up a lot of their aides rather than and I'm talking about special advisors a lot of them have come into the role with like fixer in their title rather than policy aid or uh, media aid so they've become quite adept negotiators which is why I think they've been able to maintain a real cover of strength and unity. But I also think it's really interesting that we're seeing Rishi Sunak come into his own now as someone who is shaking off like a bit of a Mr. Nice sort of reputation and having better expectation management. So the Treasury were quite quick to say, actually, there isn't uh, a lot more money in terms of steel or there isn't space for this, or actually, we're not going to go ahead with either reform to the fallow scheme or we're not going to go back into lockdown. So I think it's really interesting to start to see the definition of what kind of Sinek's um, approach as Chancellor might be, aside from having to deal with emergency to emergency. Do you think the recent cabinet reshuffle will have had an impact on this? I mean, we've got ministers newly in post inheriting the sort of discussions that their predecessor already had with the Treasury. Absolutely. I think it's been to the huge benefit of the Treasury to be able to centralise power and control more and to really step in where kind of new Secretary of State's ministers are a bit unsure and, and really tell them what their issues and sort of um, priorities will be. So I think, and, and I wrote about it, but I think the reshuffle really sort of shored up the power of the Treasury. I think they were actually the ultimate winners. Um, so aside from having, you know, a much different uh, and, a, you know, a much more female team, I think they were the biggest winners of the reshuffle. Craig, the government is 
often keen to emphasise the complementary role of the private sector in delivering on some of its major ambitions like levelling up and net zero. Are there things you would be expecting to see in this spending review to really make that a reality? Yes, I mean, there's some things that other people have mentioned I'd like to take forward. One, one is, you know, on the, on the staff shortage issue, there should be a real focus on those furthest from work. Kickstart has been okay, but it can be expanded. Um, there are a lot of people who can't take part in the plan for jobs because um, one of the requirements is that you're not currently involved in another program. So if you're involved in any other program or if you're claiming ESA benefit or in the Welcome to Health program, you can't take part. And it's like, well, actually, that's that's fixable if you're willing, if there's political leadership to come in and change that and improve it. There's been something mooted about numeracy as one of those many trailed announcements over the weekend. Looking at adult skills such as numeracy is really important because if you want to bring people into the jobs market who've been outside it for a while or who never got the skills they should have got as a young person, this is perfect. This is really, really important. And I think that will then flow through into the levelling up agenda because you're creating jobs in places where there's a staff shortage and people that could take them. And then on the specifics you mentioned there on, on levelling up and on net zero, there, there will be, we know that because it's been trailed, but we hoped there would be some money for the British Business Bank to support with small funds outside of London to support small businesses in clusters right across the UK after they did some good work on the Northern Powerhouse in the Midlands. But this could go much, much further, we think, across the southwest um, and into the northeast in, in, in particular. Um, there's this patchwork of, of business support as well through the LEPs in England, uh, which is, you know, some LEPs are very good, some LEPs are not, some LEPs are somewhere in the middle. Um, and we think this could be much, this is a, it could be a much more efficient use of public money if you created a new business support function, a new business support agency modelled on the, the good ones in Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland, um, that would bring this together. And, and so if you're a small business starting somewhere in a local community across the country, it should be easy to find support. And currently it's not. And that would be a huge, huge benefit. Um, and finally, you mentioned net zero. I mean, there are certain things they could do relatively easy. There, there are no real fiscal incentives anymore. So if you exempted solar panels, heat pumps, uh, and things that improve the working environment for people like ventilation, you know, CCTV, even printers, you know, you've got to make, if you make these things more easily accessible to people by, by incentivizing them, then you'd see a big, big difference on net zero uh, and as well as business activity. I would just finish though. Can I add a little point on some of this discussion about the public sector? Because we do, we do look at, you know, the figures about Whitehall staff costs rising by what, 30% in three years, and I think the Institute has said um, civil service numbers have risen every quarter now since 2016. So I think if there's always this push to raise more and more money and to create more and more jobs in the public sector, I think we'd struggle with that. You know, we should just see better payment, better use of public spending so that when they do include the private sector, such as when they used Carillion, for example, and we discovered that they were paying their small suppliers in 130 days. I mean, there's a clear view that public procurement money should be spent efficiently there, but it's not happening. We're not seeing people removed who aren't reaching the thresholds that are being set. So a real focus on the value of that money rather than just creating more money would be a good one, I think. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And certainly uh, the rumours we've been hearing going into this spending review is that there is a real push on departments to offer up job cuts to sort of reverse some of the expansion of the civil service that's happened 
through Brexit and then the pandemic. I mean, I think what we'd be looking for at the IFG is that it might well be the right answer to scale back the civil service, but sort of focusing on making sure those job cuts happen in a sensible way, rather than it's not necessarily the case that the civil service should look as it did in 2010, say, because the demands on government are quite different from what they were, albeit perhaps government isn't dealing with quite as much over the next few years as it has done through Brexit and then uh, through the pandemic, potentially. Um, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. Unfortunately, I think we have come to the end of our time now. An awful lot to look out for in Rishi Sunak's third budget this week and perhaps won't be quite the smooth, positive reset that he might have hoped it was going to be. Sonia, you you already talked about the fact you think actually this is quite a strong treasury. If you were the Chancellor's media advisor still, what would you be worried about going into this budget? Where are they most vulnerable? What might blow up this week? I would be worried about um, the cost of living, anything on child poverty, um, anything around the widening gap between sort of rich and poor. Um, I think on unemployment, where people um, have lost jobs in sectors that don't seem to be sort of re-emerging, like retail. Uh, and there hasn't been very much on what the future of welfare looks like, because we know that, uh, you know, actually COVID-19 has affected some people, some people greatly, and they will have long-lasting impact, um, and that will affect their ability to just live as well as work Um, and I don't feel like there has really been much of a sense of well what does that safety net really look like to capture those people but for me that's um, it's one of the sort of like most emotive it's really human and people driven and it's those stories that you know long outlive a budget it's the stories of human suffering so if you get that right or you worsen it in any way that that's where your real kind of vulnerability is there's a bigger discussion around actually you've got much more of an interventionist prime minister than you have got a chancellor and what's the overall kind of fiscal strategy and what does monetary policy look like and whatever else but the stuff that gets the newspaper headlines and the stuff that doesn't that leads newspaper headlines to continue are the human stories Craig, relations between the government and business groups seem to have been rather strained in recent weeks. From your perspective, what's the single biggest thing you'd be looking for the government to do this week to try and start repairing that? Well, I think, you know, at two totems, I kind of started the podcast, the Employment Outs and Business Rates. But I think, uh, just following on from something that Sonia said earlier, looking at the trail briefs before the budget, there are some big things that are coming to help international companies to invest here, you know, big multinationals. There's some big things coming in the budget for the banks that will see a cut in what they pay on the levy on top of corporation tax. And that's great for them. And there is some trickle down. And these are very, alongside the super deduction, these are very expensive things. But these changes are also very clear and have a date attached to them. Now, what I think we need to see is an offer to the small business community. What does this government really think about how to back the small business community that's similarly clear and practical? You know, this is helping 5.5 million businesses in our communities and, you know, and, and it, they should also be working out how do you how do you encourage people like all of us on this call um, to perhaps think about setting up our own small business and becoming an entrepreneur ourselves. So there's this there's this part of what should really be in the Conservative Party DNA that there should be something about on Wednesday. I think overall, that's what we'd be looking for. Tom, Sonia already touched on the fact that she thinks Rishi Sunak's calm performance this weekend suggests he's got something up his sleeve for Wednesday. Where would your money be for a surprise budget announcement? Yeah, I I agree with Sonia. I think that big rabbits in the budget are likely to focus on the cost of living crisis. And I think they're likely to be mostly in the short term because that's where any fiscal rule is unlikely to bite. And actually, I think um, 
probably on universal credit, we might see something. So the £20 a week uplift, you know, it kind of came and went. Um, but the deadline for, for renewing it came and went with a with little, with not even that much pressure on the Chancellor to do something. But the, the full impact of it is only actually being felt in bank accounts now and will continue to be felt over the next couple of weeks. Now, I don't think what he will do will be a permanence across, across the boards, say £10, £15 a week for everyone on universal credit. But I think he might do something more targeted and maybe temporary, maybe something on, on the taper rates. That's the rate at which your benefit is withdrawn as you earn. That that would fit quite well, I think, with with Sunak's general outlook and his focus on on higher wages. So yeah, I think something on on benefits, maybe, even though it looks like he's he's done nothing on universal credit. I think there still might be something to come. Graham, I'll give you the final word. Does any of the recent media speculation about budget measures look plausible to you? Um, uh, it's always a bit of hostage to fortune to make predictions on this, but. Um... I think probably public sector wages, uh, will, there'll be some announcement they'll retain parity with the private sector. I think politically, given there is some extra room in the capital budget, it's a bit more generous and the uh, allocations to departments have yet to be defined. Perhaps there'll be some eye-catching announcements of uh, particular new building programmes, new schools, new hospitals, etc., given that is a bit less constrained. Yeah, excellent point there. But that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing Extra. My huge thanks to Tom Pope and Graham Atkins, to our special guests Sonia Khan, and especially to Craig Beaumont and the FSB for taking part in and sponsoring this edition of Inside Briefing. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. Do join us again later this week for another special edition of Inside Briefing to dissect the budget and spending review. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. Do also check out all our analysis of the budget later this week at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Music